Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. It's Richard Lummis, I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills. We believe leadership is a skill which can be improved with study of both good and bad practices. We try to draw interesting examples from many sources, including history, fiction, film, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today we're going to continue our annual review of movies that have won the Academy Award for Best Picture with Bernardo Bertolucci's The Last Emperor from 1987. The movie follows the life of Puyi, the last emperor of China, who was crowned at the age of six and reigned from 1908 to 1912. And he was later emperor of the puppet state of Manchukuo from 1932 to 1945. In the movie, his life in the Forbidden City and later Manchuria is intercut with scenes from his imprisonment by the Communist Chinese from 1950 to 1959. The Soviets had captured him at the end of World War II and had refused to execute, to extradite him for trial uh, to Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, who were going to execute him. And they only repatriated him following the Communist victory in 1949. Other Best Picture nominees in uh, 1987 were Moonstruck, Fatal Attraction, and Broadcast News. Other notable pictures from the year include The Untouchables and Wall Street. The movie also won for Best Original Score. Uh, David Byrne was one of the composers. Um, Art Direction and Cinematography. And I must say the cinematography is pretty spectacular. John Lone stars as Puyi with Peter O'Toole playing his English tutor, Sir Reginald Johnston and Joan Chen as Empress Wan Jung. Tom, what struck you most on watching this movie? Uh, well, what struck me the most, Richard, was the, uh, uh, I think you hit it on the head, the cinematography, but it was The Forbidden City. It was the first Western movie shot in The Forbidden City, and Bertolucci made full use of it. I'm not sure we saw all 9,999 <laughs> 9, rooms or not, but uh, we saw a lot of them. And for a Westerner, uh, really being able to see this in a movie, certainly I'd seen pictures of the Forbidden City before, but this was just a spectacular uh, feast for your eyes. Visually, the colors, visually, the uh, characters, the architecture, the scenery in China uh, was really uh, first, first class and outstanding in, in every different way. And that's uh, really one of the themes for me about this movie was the... Uh, uh, different cultures, certainly between the U.S. or the West and China, but even within China, and uh, the multiple cultures that were going on, uh, the time period when he lived. Um, uh, frankly, I'm glad I didn't have to live through that China at that <laughs> part. A lot of people didn't. A lot of people didn't. Um, I guess if you were a Westerner, you might have gotten out in time. had uh, friends whose parents uh, grew up in China, and uh, they got out, uh, but... Um, uh, very different cultures, very different values, um, and a different way to think about uh, not only leadership, but collaboration. Uh, not collaboration is in terms of a collaborator, but actually... Although he was that. Although he was that, uh, with, uh, with the Japanese. Uh, also in collaboration with your fellow man, or your fellow business partner, or your fellow uh, uh, co-venture partner, uh, however that may be. So... Um, uh, another lesson I got from this was on the trappings of power. And sometimes the trappings of power are just that. They're just trappings. 
And Pugh Way uh, really was one of the greatest examples I've ever seen of someone who certainly had the trappings of power. He was surrounded by eunuchs and servants uh, that uh, catered to his every whim. There was a scene where uh, he, uh, when he was a very young child, ran out of the uh, uh, one of the palaces and he was followed by three or four sets of eunuchs uh, carrying uh, chairs for him to, to be carried in as so that uh, he wouldn't have to walk. And they ran after him in a circle, and it was just the trappings of power but that, that only were that. He was in many ways trapped by his eunuchs who didn't want to lose their power or give up their power. Um, he was eventually expelled from the palace. Uh, but the character that, one I guess, struck me the most was the one you mentioned, the Peter O'Toole character, Sir Reginald Johnston. He was the tutor for uh, the young prince, and he was the one who oversaw the truth and reported it sort of in character throughout the movie. Um, he uh, attempted to train and mold the mind of the young emperor. I'm not sure how successful he was, but uh, he did try. It also uh, demonstrated to me that sometimes you need to bring in outside expertise. Uh, it was not a Chinese tutor, but uh, I think he was a Scotsman. Uh, but uh, he was uh, certainly a... Uh, United Kingdomer, yeah. if I can use that phrase, I guess British. An English gentleman. An English, well, I'm not, if he was Scots, no, I'm not British, sure. British, British, you're right. British. Um, so uh, that character was fascinating. Um, the different cultures, the different values. What is respect in the Chinese culture? Uh, how do you show respect? Even to this day, uh, they present business cards in different ways. And I'm uh, continually reminded that I don't usually or... Sometimes I fail to present a business card uh, in the Oriental way, even here in Houston, Texas, when I'm presented with a business card by a Chinese or perhaps other uh, Asian. And I need to be sensitive to that because it means something to them. Uh, within the Chinese context, colors meant something. And I think that's true today, and it's certainly something that's lost probably on most uh, Westerners and certainly most uh, blunt force Texans. Um, um, and then one other thing that kind of came out uh, to me uh, was an issue that is becoming more prevalent in the greater anti-corruption world, but it's become a business risk uh, when it used to be seen as political risk, and that's regime change. And I don't mean the Saddam Hussein, let's kill the bastard regime change. I mean democratically elected regime change. So for instance, as in South Africa, where we saw a change at the very top of the African National Congress, uh, with President Zuma uh, replaced. We certainly saw regime change in Malaysia, a democratically elected regime change. We saw regime change in Brazil. Uh, we have seen regime change in Angola, uh, where the prior ruling family lost an election and got thrown out by the current ruling family. Um, those are all different aspects of regime change, although I would say at least clothed or cloaked with an air of democratic values or democracy because of a vote. Um, in the business world, though, that has come to mean something very different. And it means that the uh, it's not, won't get fooled again, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. The old boss is going to investigate, excuse me, the new boss is going to investigate the old boss. And he's going to investigate who got mineral concessions from the old boss. And he's going to investigate who got deals with the old boss. And he's going to investigate who set up joint ventures, partnerships with the old boss. And if you're an American company or you're a Western company, if you've done business 
with the old boss, you need to uh, be cognizant of that, and you need to scrub all of your operations to see if there's any possible place that money could have bled out to pay a bribe. Because if that happened, uh, you could find yourself uh, perhaps not as publicly being flayed as Goldman Sachs is right now, but you could find yourself on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Financial Times, uh, from any of these countries. Uh, another thing to consider is your strategy in doing business in these countries. Uh, the Chinese right now have gotten a lot of publicity over their um, Belt and Roads policy. It's an initiative to uh, gain greater traction in Africa. Uh, and, the, and, uh, and Asia. And Asia. The um, sort of the party line would be, well, we're going in and we're going to help uh, investment and uh, upgrade infrastructure. Perhaps a more cynical view is we're going to loan a bunch of money to these poor impoverished com- countries who can't pay us back, and then we're going to take over uh, from the inside their financial institutions. But the problem the Chinese have is it is a very hierarchical program. They deal directly with the top, whether that's paid, uh, a cynical American businessman would say the Chinese are paying bribes. Even if they're not paying bribes, they're only dealing with the very top. That works while the very top is in power. But when the very top changes and a new regime comes in, uh, you see, as Malaysia has done, they repudiate uh, these, these contracts. And if Malaysia, sitting that close to China, can repudiate them, you can best be assured that the Africans would have no compunction uh, uh, from repudiating them. So um, the regime change that we saw several times in this movie uh, was uh, actually one of the things that came out, and I think this uh, increasing political risk, or this political risk will increase business risk going forward. So I would ask any listeners to this podcast to consider where are you doing business uh, that could uh, have a regime democratically changed? Uh, And what would that mean for your business if you have done business with that foreign government? Yeah. Well, I think those are very good points. uh, One of the things that actually struck me as both a strength and weakness of the movie was its treatment of China as the exotic other uh, and, and something totally strange and alien. In a, in a way, it reminded me of those uh, the movies of the late 50s, early 60s, like King Solomon's Mines or even mm-hmm. uh, the scenes in Turkey and From Russia with Love, where they just sort of inject a travelogue. Uh, it's not of, as of long as it's not the Midnight Express. Yes. <laughs> of, of an exotic culture, and then there are pictures of the dancing natives or whatever. Um, and to a certain extent, I, I got that feel out of this movie. Um. One of the other themes, of course, is the extraordinary weirdness of royalty. But one of the lessons... <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's a scene where he's sitting on a chamber pot with the entire court around him so that they can examine the results. Um, but he believed that he had a kinship with the Japanese emperor simply on the basis of their title. They were both emperors. And it turned out the Japanese emperor had a very different view of their relationship. So I think that was that was an example of an assumption that you shared something with someone on a, on a superficial basis that needed to be examined further. Um, he's not a he's not a terribly likable character. I think in part because he's essentially an alien who really doesn't understand any of the worlds the, the sequential worlds that he inhabits. Um, 
he he never really is able to take care of himself until I guess probably in the '60s he was he could tie his own shoes and brush his teeth. But that was about it. Um, and then your mention of the trappings of power, the um, his wife who was uh, addicted to opium and by this point when he was uh, became emperor of Manchukuo um, refers to his coronation as resembling the inauguration of a factory it was totally fake she knew it he didn't um, but I thought that was an interesting lesson as well yes she was an interesting character in the movie and uh, in many ways uh, seemed a lot more grounded in reality than he was well, I think she was, even in real life, although she did become heavily addicted to opium. Um, and then she disappeared in the latter stages of World War II, executed almost certainly by the Japanese. Um, but they've never found her remains. But yeah, her character in the movie certainly is much more grounded than, than Puyi's. So Richard, I thought this was a worthy Academy Award winner. I think it had everything the Academy wants to see in a, a Best Picture. It was big. It was a big picture. It uh, was grand. It had a sweep of history. Um, it may have been a little um, light on uh, storyline uh, and certainly uh, great dialogue. But uh, as, as, as theater, I found this, and it still to this day remains one of my uh, favorite movies just for the, the grand sweep of history and seeing things played out on the stage, on a big stage, in a way that you alluded to with really the, uh, the exotic dancers and the colors and the, and the different scenery uh, in a way that you can't get in any other medium. Yeah. No, I totally agree that it, it's a worthy best picture. I will warn you, uh, the director's cut is nearly four hours long, um, so you might want to find the original theatrical release, which is closer to two hours. Um, but in, in any event, it's, it is a spectacular movie. Um, it's a fascinating period of history. Uh, I wish they had done a little bit more with the Dowager Empress, who is one of the great characters of history, but uh, she did die when he was sick, so I guess there's only so much they could do. Um, And I guess that's about it for this episode of 12 O'Clock High from Richard Lummis and Tom Fox. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.